you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of Leadosophy, Tim Wood. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Leadosophy. Super excited about this episode. It's my interview with Captain Ryan Leo, which you're going to hear in a few, you're going to hear in a few minutes. Ryan talks about Leadership in general, we graduated from Gonzaga together in the Masters of Arts Organizational Leadership Program. Ryan's got a concentration in, in global leadership studies. But Ryan talks heavily about leadership on a ship, a large cargo container ship. Ryan works for Matson Navigation Company. It's the leading Jones Act shipping company in the Hawaii and Pacific trades. He's the master of the 681-foot motor vessel Monolay. And you can, I put a picture up here, you can see it. Huge ship uh, and can hold 2,500 20-foot containers. Ryan holds a BS in marine transportation from SUNY Maritime College and a master mariner of unlimited tonnage, vessels upon oceans license, which is issued by the U.S. Coast Guard. So super excited about this interview. We're going to jump right into it. I'm asking Ryan about how he got into the maritime world, what drew him to the ocean, to boats, I had a little bit of technical audio glitch here in the Leadosophy Nerve Center. I'm still a rookie podcaster, but Ryan's going to be coming in kind of mid mid answer to that question about what led him into the the maritime world. And then got about a fifty eight minute one hour interview with with Ryan. Awesome stuff. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. So I would go over there. So she was one of the first females to go there. She went. She was an engineer. I would go over and visit the school <clears throat> quite a bit. Her husband also graduated from there and he was working there as like the sailing coach and instructor. So when I was in high school, I'd go over a lot and take out the boats and work with the sailing team. And, and I, you know, I was never a great student. I never had a love for school. So coming out of high school, I, I wasn't looking to go to a traditional college. I was looking at all sorts of different, different stuff. And the, uh, you know, maritime college, you spend the summer on a ship, uh, New York maritime college usually goes over to Europe. If you go to the one in California, you spend time in the Pacific, but uh, that's what really drew me in was uh, I, I always spent time on the water from when I was a little kid. I bought my first boat, a little 13-foot whaler when I was 11 years old for 500 bucks. I always knew I would be on the water, but I never saw myself on these big ships. But uh, for me, it was just kind of a way to escape going to a real college. <laughs> so I wound up there. Well, and it's funny because you end up getting a master's degree at Gonzaga, you know, know. so you yeah. came you came a long way from not liking college. Yeah. <laughs> very true were you did you have any reservations about getting into the master's program at Gonzaga just based off like you weren't really in that much in the college I did yeah what were they yeah uh I did you know my my I've never considered myself much of an academic so moving into a master's degree I was a little hesitant and uh I definitely had a bit of like the imposter syndrome when I first showed up there so meeting a lot of people that really impressive and really smart and i was was wondering if i could do it but uh you know for me gonzaga was probably the best academic experience i ever had it was the first time i ever really wanted to be in school not because i i didn't need to be there for anything you know i wasn't i was there because it was something that i was interested in i didn't i wasn't really looking to switch careers or this was just something that interested me that i wanted to learn more about i think for me that made a big difference which was you know it was much older i was 38 when i went for my master's which was much different to being an 18-year-old kid going into college. Oh, man, tell me about it. I, well, yeah. obviously, for me, after 20 years in, in the Coast Guard, I didn't go back to get my undergrad until I was 38. So mm -hmm. your perspective is completely different Yep. when you're there voluntarily, you know, just and you want to learn. You have, I think, I guess, safe to say, maybe you just have a different perspective on, on knowledge at, in your 30s than you do when you're a teenager. So. so. Mm -hmm. All right, so... Our final capstone project for Gonzaga, we had to we had to create like a kind of like a website, and I know your website never mm -hmm. actually I don't think it's officially ever went like public, but I still you gave me access and I was looking at it. You have a quote on the front of your website, and it says the mark of a great ship handler is never getting into situations that require great ship handling. Can you explain mm -hmm. why did you choose that quote? What why does it resonate with you? 
Yeah, you know, I think it tied into leadership a lot for me because if you see on that website, I was really kind of tying in what shipboard leadership was about. And, uh, you know, when I entered Gonzaga, I didn't really have a clear understanding of what leadership was. And so all the different types or approaches to leadership, servant leadership, authentic leadership, global leadership, transformational leadership, uh, at some point, during the program there, it clicked for me that shipboard leadership is a unique skill set of its own that's unlike uh, any of the others. Can you unpack it, that? It's a lot of the same uh, fundamentals. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, you cannot, can you unpack that, what that means? Yeah, so it's a lot of the same fundamentals as somebody who concentrates in organizational leadership or global leadership or servant leadership. But uh, I, I think... There's a lot more complexity in it because a lot of unknowns and there's no going home. There's no turning it off at the end of the day. You know, when you're the captain of a well, any vessel, really, your door is pretty much open 24 hours a day. Even if it's closed, it's open. They're going to come get you if they need you. So uh, living and working with the people around the clock adds a unique element where you're not only their boss, but you're also their confidant and like, you know, you're the doctor and their mental health professional and the police and the fire department. It's, and you know, you spend time at sea, so you know what I'm talking about. And it adds a whole nother dynamic that wasn't necessarily covered in the, the literature that we were reading for our program. So, uh, and where, you know, I saw that ship handler quote, I've, I've seen it for years, but it popped up when I was putting the website together, I was searching for nautical quotes. And uh, I had just read, I was reading up on Greenleaf and servant leadership, and he was saying that one of the key aspects of servant leadership is foresight, seeing what's coming down the road. And those that's where I made the connection there. Because I think to be a mariner in general, not a captain necessarily, but any type of mariner, servant leadership is a big part of it, putting other people before yourself. You're always looking out for the safety of the vessel and the safety of the crew, as well as your own safety. So foresight's a big part of that, trying to predict what's going to come down the road and anticipate the situations that you're going to run into. And uh, if you could do that effectively, you don't, you know, you don't have to take these extreme measures. You know, you don't have to come into a uh, point of extremists where you need to really, you know, use 20 degrees redder and kick the ship around and miss the sailboat. It's, you would have never gotten close to it. And right. it's not, to me, that's the mark of a good ship handler and of a good leader. Cause when leadership is really executed well, you almost don't even know what's happening. You don't feel like you're being led or you're leading. It's, it's very f fluid. That makes sense. It makes total, it makes total sense. I, I think of this I, foresight. That's man. I have, that's, that's actually really a really great thought. And I'm, th I'm thinking just docking up a ship, right? You need foresight. Where's the wind coming from? You know? Don't don't mm -hmm. start docking up the ship unless you know what the environmental conditions are doing, right? Absolutely. And then obviously the leadership connotation. Did you did you feel like the Gonzaga program from a leadership standpoint was more almost more introspective? Yes, I did too. Did, mm -hmm. What did you take away from that? You know, over that those two years, from an introspective standpoint, did you change? Did it change you? Absolutely. You know. I really loved the program. I thought it was great. And uh, it's funny because, you know, the reason I wanted to go to Gonzaga because I didn't want to do an online degree or fully online degree. I knew because of my work, I would never get through a traditional master's degree. Yeah. And the online portion was great. But I really liked the aspect that you could attend all these uh, in-person sessions. And when I, when I signed up, I had initially wanted to do four of them. And I, the only one that I got to was the one that, I did with you when I got stuck on the ship for the, uh, the leadership and hardiness course on the, uh, on the mountain climb. Right. And then everything out, the other three were canceled by, uh, COVID. The so, leadership and hardy course was the Mount Adams trip, right? In Washington. Mount Adams yeah, climb, gotcha. yeah. mm -hmm. And, uh, so that being said, it's totally changed my opinion on online learning. Cause I thought it was fantastic. And I'm really surprised at how much, it influenced me from a, which what basically became a strictly online program, except for that four days there. And, uh, the, 
the uh, it really made me aware of how much I was missing. You know, like the the initial stuff with Dr. Carey about the frames, how much stuff I wasn't seeing, and how bad of a listener I was. Which uh, and it's funny because you know most probably eighty five percent of the program was online, and you're not you know we, there's a lot of zooms and breakouts, but most of it is message boards and written papers and. Uh, so I found it kind of interesting that through mostly written communication, I became acutely aware of how much I was failing to really attentively listen to what people were saying to me. Yeah, that's, that's a great insight. I, it changed me too. It was, I, I needed the introspection. It was, I was able to reflect like, you know, just like you, I was able to reflect over years of being in a leadership position and mm-hmm. just kind of seeing maybe how, I guess, I don't know if I was always inadequate, but definitely, like you said, I was missing things. And, and you know, as any, any, any Mariner knows, communication is probably the most critical skill, technical skill mm-hmm. you can have yep. in the maritime environment. And listening is obviously one of those key skills. So Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great, great point. My, my next question, and this is really, I go back and forth on this. It's this, this dichotomy between technical competence and leadership competence. So someone, someone like you who, who has climbed the ranks on, on large ships, right? Is it safe to say you've, you've had to build your technical competence long before and almost maybe more robust than you've had to build your, your leadership competence? Or is there even a difference? I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on it. What, do you, what are your thoughts on technical competence versus leadership competence? I think there's a big difference. And I think, uh, I think you could have one or the other or both. And I think it, it depends on a ship and in your job. It depends on the role that you're in, where for an engineer or even a chief mate, uh, their technical competence is probably more important than their leadership uh, competencies. But when you come up to the top tier ranks on the ship as chief engineer or captain, that you need to have a solid foundation for both. Uh, you know, a lot of people in life, I think, survive on on luck. And it's, it's no different in the maritime industry. People just kind of coast by and nothing bad happens, not necessarily because they're good, but just because they're, they're lucky and, you know, they don't get caught in a bad seat. But uh, that's when the leadership kicks in, when... you're not going to get off the dock without having the technical competencies The you know, we're loading 2,500 containers and a bunch of hours and the, the amount of uh, information and uh, systems that need to work for that to come together is it's really robust. You know, you're, you're thinking fuel oil, ballast, trim, stability. It, it's a lot. Uh, so there needs to be a really sound technical foundation on the ship. But, we, you know, we have a big division of labor. It's not everybody's doing their own thing. We have, you know, on my ship, we have five labor unions and we have uh, three three to four departments, depending on what ship you're on. We have the deck department, which is uh, cargo and navigation, the engine department, which is uh, working in the engine room, but also on deck and in the, in the uh, accommodations, doing any type of uh, maintenance and repairs. It's the stewards department, which does all the cooking and cleaning. And then we have a communications department, which typically on the commercial ships is just a one man radio officer. But if you get on the uh, gray hole government ships, you know, it could be a much bigger department. So everybody is a, basically an expert in their own. Well, the higher ups in each department are experts in their own little uh, fiefdom on the ship. You know, they're, everybody's in their own union and they, and it's where those, uh, Departments intermix is where the leadership really comes into play in my, in my view. Did you say there's five unions on the ship? Yeah. So yeah. from a, how does that, I mean, there's a whole nother side of leadership as far as oh, yeah. politics, it's, right? Navigating that political, I, I guess I, is politics a good word. I don't know if that's a good word for, for, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a bureaucracy yeah. and you know, it, it actually works it, to people who aren't too familiar with labor unions. It sounds really cumbersome, but for the most part, it works really well. The unions get along really well. A lot of it makes what your job is very clearly defined. So, uh, 
you don't have to worry for the most part, if this is something that you should be concerned about, it's, it's cut and dry. Who's responsible for what, uh, down to, you know, who changes a broken door lock to who mounts a TV on the wall to who changes a broken refrigerator in somebody's room. That's all clear cut in the labor contracts. It's a lot of work when you, uh, are managing it. You know, you have five different labor contracts in your office. So when you get that, you have to know, and, uh, so when overtime comes across a desk that's questionable or something like that, you have to you have to really know and dig into the contract and figure it out. But for the most part, it's it's a uh, it's a complex but a, a pretty good system. It works out pretty kind of kind of runs it, as a, runs itself runs show. itself for the mm-hmm. most part, right? Right for the most part. Yeah. When we were in Spokane for the six oh five course, you you brought up the the maritime accident. I think it was two thousand fifteen. The, the SS. Yeah, the Alfaro. Yeah, the, El, the Alfaro. Mm-hmm. That drove you a little bit right into leadership studies? Did it play a part? Yeah, definitely. The uh, You know, I was thinking about doing a master's degree. And the uh, I was at sea when the Alfaro sunk. And I knew I had sailed with three people who were on the Alfaro. Can you, can you, give, a, can you give a brief? Um, the listeners may not know what the Alfaro accident was. Can you just give a brief summary? Sure. Yeah. So when it was October of 2015, the El Faro was a container ship that was on a regular run from Puerto Rico to uh, well, Jacksonville, Florida, Puerto Rico. They departed Jacksonville and they sailed into the eye of a Category 4 hurricane and sunk. And uh, it's a really interesting case study on leadership because uh, all ships these days have a black box in the wheelhouse like an airplane does. And they recovered it from the seafloor. So for the day preceding the accident, you can listen to all the conversations between the captain and the bridge team. And uh, they released those transcripts. The NTSB did a full investigation on it. A couple books have been written on it. There are hearings on it. Uh, A lot's been published on it. So having gone to sea and having, you know, read pretty thoroughly what happened on the O'Farrow, to me, it was a, uh, it was a failing on two levels. It was a leadership failure on the ship, and it was also a failing of an, an entire system, which uh, includes the Coast Guard and, and the International Maritime Organization and all these maritime regulatory bodies that are supposed to prevent things like this happening. And uh, so it's a very interesting case study. But it, yeah, I would definitely say it was the thing that drove me out of doing an MBA and looking more at leadership, which I'm 110% glad I did in retrospect. It was great, but it really got me uh, uh, down the path to reading about leadership and how organizations make catastrophic decisions, how systems fail and stuff like that. When I, when I taught risk management in the Coast Guard, one of the case studies I used was the, the Zeebrug uh, ferry. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that accident that happened, I think it was 19, late 80s, mid late 80s that ferry that sunk off Zeebrug, Belgium, uh, that was going from Zeebrug to, to Dover. And a, a, another classic example of systemic failure at all levels. Yep. Right. And it's just, you know, little things turn into big things. And the next thing, you know, you're sailing with the bow doors open of a car passenger exactly. ferry. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I talk a lot about systems and processes and I, I, this is one of my assumptions is that if you can, f- there's a lot of broken processes within systems that if you fix the processes, it'll change what the people do. Vice versa. Instead of trying to fix the people, it still doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't uh, cover for the fact that your process is still broken. Right. Yep. So I people are going to find worker, you know, it. people find workarounds on the ship or whatever for a broken mm-hmm. process. So that's, yeah, it's a, uh, I like the system. I love talking and we had that systems class too at, at Gonzaga. Uh, six, yeah, great, great yeah. class, great mm-hmm. class. I, I think that should and, be, uh, I think any leader should understand that whole systems thinking dynamic. I think it's important. I think so too. And I would encourage anybody who, uh, who is interested in leadership to read about, uh, the Alfaro thinking, cause it's a, it really is a master's class in itself of just failures in leadership and systemic issues that, you know, went on for the, in the U S flag maritime industry for decades. And the, uh, uh, there's a really good book called Leadership is Language, and it was by a uh, 
written by a former sub-captain. He wrote, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he wrote another book called Turn the Ship Around about how he had the worst-rated submarine in the U.S. Naval Fleet and how he turned it around to become a top performer. And, and the first chapter of Leadership as Language is all about the Alfaro sinking. And he took those NTSB recordings and he went through how the captain talked to the crew and how the crew talked when the captain was present and how they talked when he wasn't present and how, you know, cause you can, you can hear the bridge recording, the captain comes and goes, but the, the recording's running 24 seven. So you would hear the crew second guessing the captain, but nobody ever really speaks up when he comes to the bridge. And then, uh, you know, they, they yes them on the phone and then hang up and be like, ah, oh, this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing, but they, nobody ever really called him out. And then you have on the bridge, you have the helmsman, with a, called the AB watch who, who steers he's what would be like an enlisted man in the military and he breaks down the percentage of words spoken by the captain and the officer on watch and the helmsman and you know you I mean you have ABs that have gone to sea for 40 years who who have a really good they're good they're excellent mariners and uh I think the he says the AB spoke less than 10% of the time up there. They're basically silent in the corner. And, you know, for me, you're talking about communication. And uh, that's the type of stuff that uh, really interested me in, in studying leadership more. And that's kind of, it's really hit home with me, with me listening to what people are saying. And, you know, that so it's a bigger you know, when you, when you go through the whole Gonzaga program, it's a much, you get a much broader picture of what I'm talking about right now, but that, that sums it up for me pretty well right there. That is it safe to, is it safe to say that there was a, there, there was a culture organizational culture issue within the ship, the dynamic. Absolutely. Was it more like an authoritarian style Were people afraid to speak up? Yes. I think to a point, uh, I wouldn't say that's actually characteristic of all Mariners. That's not something that's, I think had you had different people on the ship, you would have had people that would have been like, listen, you're out of your mind. I'm not, I'm not doing it. We're not, we're not taking this route. You're crazy. You're not sailing us into a hurricane. But uh, on this ship, these people have worked together for quite some time on my ships. People rotate only the captain, chief engineer, first engineer and chief mate uh, return all the other crew rotate they'll come for four months and then you may never see them again so i think there was a level of comfort on that ship that uh led to complacency a little bit where they they did trust the captain and they said this guy has a lot of experience but when they started to see him making mistakes they they didn't speak up and break what we call the error chain which was human factors uh, exactly human factors yeah, and there was probably, I haven't read the case report, but I'm assuming there were probably multiple times people could have stepped in and broke that air chain, right? You know, I should I should rephrase it. People did speak up and say, hey, I, you know, but they weren't direct. Right. It was more like a, hey, why don't we try this route over here instead of like, Assertively hey, you're saying, making huge mistakes right now. You're putting all our lives in danger. So right. they tried to steer him in the right direction, but he wasn't hearing it. He wasn't, you know, he was embedded in the route he wanted to take. And he wasn't letting them break through. And, you know, I, I can't speak to why that was, but uh, the they weren't communicating directly would be the best way to put it. Right. And you yeah. you said you knew you had some friends that went down with that ship, right? Yeah, I sailed with uh, two people on the ship, one of them extensively, one of them just for uh, – a day or two. And then the, uh, the chief engineer was a classmate and a shipmate of mine after we graduated. Wow. The whole crew was lost, right? Yep. The whole crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they ever locate the ship? They did. Yeah. Did they? they located the ship, the NTSB, and they, uh, sent a, an ROV down. They were able to locate the black box and, uh, nobody was recovered. Uh, no bodies or anything, but yeah, yeah you know, it was a huge loss. And it was a real, it was a real shakeup. And, uh, that's a gut punch to the whole fleet, right? It was to the whole U S flag fleet. It's really changed the way things operate from, uh, you know, in the last five years, the coast guard inspections that we have annually now are much more intense, uh, much more thorough. And the, uh, a lot of companies, fortunately, the company I work for has always been, uh, 
on, on the right side of things, I would say. Sure. Not that they don't make mistakes, but they, uh, they, they have, we have a really strong safety culture matcher at Matson. That's, that's but, good. Uh, the, I mean, a lot of companies and a lot of other where my friends work, they've had big, big shakeups in the company. A lot had a change to get them sailing again. I mean, a lot of ships got uh, arrested, tied up at the dock, unable to sail until things were fixed. It was a big, uh, it's a big shakeup in the industry, and, and I'm 100 percent for it. I think it's, it, uh, you know, it's sad that sometimes you need that wake up call to to be an agent of change, but you know, we, we needed it, and it was, it's been, it, it's a really tragic event. In my eyes, it's, it's had a, a positive influence on the industry. It's made made a lot of people a lot safer. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that aviation industry, maritime industry, how many how many policies have came from fatal accidents exactly. or you know just yep. terrible accidents? Unfortunately, it's mm-hmm. sometimes how we learn when things go wrong. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate, but uh, no, at least at least something positive came out of it. Okay, so I told you I was going to ask you about the difference between shipboard leadership and shipboard management? Because Mm -hmm. you've talked about this before. I say there's a difference between management and leadership. I always say if, I guess if you had a Venn diagram, there'd be some, some overlap, maybe some overlap, but from the shipboard management, shipboard leadership, can you talk about the differences or similarities or both? Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely think there's a difference. And I would say, you know, probably a bigger part, of your day as captain of a ship is, is management, uh, than it is leadership, but the leadership, even though it might be a smallest percentage of your, your time is much more crucial to operating the ship safely. And, uh, you know, I think the function of management is basically providing consistency and order within a system that's already, that already exists. That's already been developed where I personally look at leadership more like a, uh, a skill set that allows an individual to, to find a new way to approach a problem or empower others that you work with to participate in the decision-making process. And, uh, you know, I think the, the common theme that we heard in Gonzaga was leadership is, uh, moving a group of individuals toward a shared common goal. So I, I definitely think there are big distinctions between leadership and management, but as you're saying, I think there definitely exists a gray area where you're doing both. I, I don't think it's, it's very, it's cut and dry, but uh, I, I think on a ship, you know, we, we operate on what we call safety management systems, which are pretty robust uh, operating guidelines about how we, how we go through evolutions and you know we have and i'm a firm believer in these systems we we are a the maritime industry these days is a checklist culture we have checklists for everything and i love them i think it really for me it uh it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it you know somebody's already sat there and thought about it but uh so for our day-to-day stuff that that is management. You're managing the system. You're going through the checklist. You're going through the motions. You're arriving on time. Now, you know, the leadership stuff, it can get a little tricky. And, uh, you know, my very first day as captain, this was not with Matson. This was, I was working on a, uh, 2016, I was captain on a, a car ship and we loaded up, uh, we were in Corpus Christi, Texas, and we loaded up, uh, tanks and helicopters to bring over to uh, Kuwait. And it was a, about, a, it was a pretty uh, high profile mission. We, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of eyes on us and the, uh, the air conditioner broke the right before we're about to sail. So it was August in Texas. In Texas, right. And we're about to go, you know, past Saudi, through Egypt, through the Suez Canal, past Saudi Arabia. So, I'm sorry, it was June in Texas, and we we're going to be in Kuwait in August. So, <laughs> I uh, we had a port engineer on board who's like one of our maintenance supervisors, and he said, well, you got to go. You'll just deal with the air conditioner. 
Is it yeah, just one no air condi- one air conditioner, like one space, or no, our whole our whole house AC <laughs> the whole okay, system. gotcha. Yeah, so we lost our entire AC plant. Okay, so we had no air conditioning in the whole ship. We're, you know, we're about to sail across the ocean in the Middle East into the summer. So it's not. So one of my very first moves as captain was to circumvent the port engineer and call the vice president of the company and say, "Hey, I'm not sailing to you. Fix the air conditioner." which was extremely nerve wracking. And I was sure they were going to fire me and tell me you're an idiot and sell the ship. Time is money, right? In your industry. Yep. Yep. And they, they did not do that. I called the VP and said, oh, absolutely. You can't sell a ship to Kuwait in the summertime without air conditioning. So we left 12 hours later. We brought a bunch of techs in. Uh, we fixed what we needed to. So you could have easily had a different VP that would have been like either sail or I'll find someone who else will sail. And that's where that's where being a captain gets a little hairy where you as a leader need to put the interests of the ship before anything else. And uh, in some organizational cultures, the interests of the ship and the interest of the company don't always align. So, and you know, and that's a thing about the El Faro where this captain on the El Faro had been fired previously for refusing to sail a ship that had a steering issue. He was fired from another company. Their steering gear failed. They were shifting uh, from, I think, Baltimore to Virginia down the Chesapeake, and he ordered a tugboat to tow him. So 10 grand, probably. Uh, and he was let go for that. So that's the kind of stuff that leaves, you know, that's where the El Faro case gets really interesting because you have these, this, uh, situation where this guy had been fired for doing the right thing and now he's running into a hurricane i wonder how much that played into him but yeah you know i mean basically captains need to be ready to take a stand and say no i'm not doing it and you know and deal with the fallout luckily for me anytime i've had to call the office and say i can't sail the ship i've received 100 percent support but uh i've been lucky with the outfits that i'm in I've, i've worked for pretty good pretty good companies where uh you know, not everybody gets that. So, but, uh, so this is a, this is a long way to get to what I was trying to point, get to, but I think a lot of leadership stuff falls in the gray area. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of companies have operating procedures that you can read that tells you how you're supposed to approach a certain problem or, or, uh, execute a certain evolution. But I think the leadership stuff, most of it is the stuff that's not that cut and dry, that it's definitely a soft a soft science, you know, the field of leadership studies where it's hard to put a finger on what makes a good or effective leader or even what leadership is, but it's, uh, you know, getting, getting buy-in from the people you're working with, getting people to share your, your values, common values and having common goals is, uh, is what I took away is the, you know, the big aspects of leadership. Yeah. No, that's, that answer deserved as much time as it took to talk about shipboard management and shipboard leadership. Cause again, I, I always equate managing kind of managing the processes and the systems like you're talking about checklists, whatever they are mm-hmm. leading people through those either good systems or chaotic yep. systems or whatever, making those changes, making those hard, hard calls. That's, that's definitely the, the leadership side of it. And like you said, I, I think there's, there's probably a, a bigger gray area than people want to imagine. You know, we talk about all these organizational leadership programs and, you know, there's, again, I, I'm, I don't think there's any universal truths in the world of leadership, no. man. As soon as you think you found the truth, it's going to yep. get cut out from underneath you. And that's my experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a leadership philosophy? You know, I don't have, is that wing it? <laughs> Not wing it, right? No, definitely not. But uh, I'm actually just looking right now. Part of that Gonzaga program is writing your leadership philosophy. Yeah. And I guess mine's about five pages, so it's a little much to go through. But I think. Uh, what are some common themes? I know we've, we've you've you know written about this extensively. Kind of our yeah. philosophy. What about some just narrow themes of of leadership from a philosophy I, standpoint? Yes, I think. Uh, Clearly communicating 
your values and your ethics and your intentions are uh, paramount to good leadership. I think uh, treating people with respect and uh, earning their respect, no matter what your position is. And, you know, one of the big takeaways from me at Gonzaga was the difference between uh, positional power and personal power. And it's easy when you get into the situation where you're the captain of a ship to rely on your positional power. You know, I'm the captain. This is the way it's going to be. You're going to do it. But in my experience, that quickly falls apart when things start to go wrong. The uh, It's building your own personal power, which is the... Uh, the way you're able to influence others and to get them to see you as somebody who's knowledgeable and likable. And I think, uh, I think when you get into tense situations, it's really important that you've built, you've built that and that, you know, going into the situation, no matter what your, and this goes for any organization, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a captain of the ship, no, no matter what your title is that uh, you need to work really hard to build that, personal power and it should basically eclipse whatever your title is. If that makes sense. I got a follow on. You said something I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. You said likability or being likable. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, do you think that as a, as a captain, it's important for you to be likable from a personality standpoint, just interaction, day-to-day interaction with, with the crew. Is that an important part of leadership? I think it's fine to be the captain and have people not like you. I don't think there's any issue with having certain people on the ship not like you. I think for the most part, though, you you do want to be a likable character. And, and I think, and I'm not saying that you can't be tough, but I think you can be tough and likable. And, you know... It, Less so these days when I first started sailing 15, 16 years ago, you would get these tyrant old timer captains who like you just hated them. And you would be so hesitant to pick up the phone and call them if anything happened. And uh they led by fear, right? For the most part. It exactly. Was, it was fear. Yep. And you don't want to be that guy. So I'm not saying that I don't want to paint like a picture here that like, you know, it's all kumbaya on the ship and everybody loves each other. It's definitely not the case. And it's fine. I mean, like, I'm sure there are people out there that you know. I've had to fire people. I'm sure there are people that don't like me. You're never going to please I'm, everyone. Never going to please exactly. everyone. I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But, uh, you know, we, we mariners, the officers at least spend six months a year on the ship. And uh, some of the unlicensed spend eight months a year on the ship, you know. So it's just an unhealthy environment to have to, to wake up every day and go to work with somebody that you don't like. I'm not saying you have to be friends best friends or even friends at all. But like there's something to be said for working with people that you like and respect. And I think it's, it's to me a critical component of uh, building a highly functioning team, be it on the ship or uh, you know, anywhere you don't have to be. I think I said it already. You don't have to be everybody's best friend and you don't have to be, it's not, shipboard life's hard people are tired but it's not uh there's no escape you don't have to you don't have to make it more miserable <laughs> right well and it's like i can go to work and then leave at the end of the day mm-hmm. you're 24 hours you, there's nowhere to go no so it helps i think even more if there is some good relationships to develop and you know if exactly. you like the people that you're working with probably makes the trip a little shorter Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. I mean, you could see it on a ship when morale is high on the ship and the food is good and people are clicking and there's a mutual respect between everybody and the ship operates safer, more work gets done. Like, you know, you could, it, it, it is a net positive for the company and the ship and the crew for everybody involved. It's just a, it's a, uh, in my mind, it's an all around win when everybody likes each other. And I, I don't want to, I, I think I was pretty clear. I don't want it to yeah. be like, you know, it's not a cartoon, but it's real life. And, <laughs> and, you know, that gets lost in 
some of the academic stuff, I think a little bit, you know, like there was a, a lot of stuff that Gonzaga was talking about uh, building people up and which I'm all for it, but I think there's a hard, you know, there's a, there's a hard limit on that. There's and, a certain grind aspect. That's like the nuts and bolts and like, it's not all that theoretical exactly. stuff. Like, you know, yeah. we were talking about the technical competencies, you know, like if your job is to steer the ship and you show up and we're leaving port, you can't steer the ship like you might be getting off of, on the pilot boat before we're even out of the harbor like you can be the greatest leader on the planet right but if you can't steer the ship yeah yeah that's it so like the uh you have to be able to do your job and i think uh it's easy to sit in an academic setting and talk about how you need to build up your your uh low performers and, and to an extent it's true but i think it's hard to 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 quantify how important it is to cut the dead weight sometimes as well. The, the, those are the hard parts of leadership. Well, sometimes yeah, it's hard. Exactly. Sometimes it's pretty easy. Sometimes they make the decision for you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You, you, you mentioned something earlier that I think if I could pin you down, you'd probably say it was part of your, or fit somewhere in your leadership philosophy. And you talked about empowerment. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe a multi-part question. The first question is, do you ever get any of your crew members approach you with a desire to be in your role one day? Do they ask that like, Hey, how do I get to where you're at? Do you ever get questions like that? Or do you have one or two people that you think like, you know what, that person could do what I do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You always try to help those people out. And, uh, the, you know, I, I think you empower people by, you know, a good example on the ship is that, when the captain comes up to the wheelhouse, we call it the bridge, the, uh, there's a tendency for some junior officers to kind of to relinquish the watch, to be like, okay, the captain's here, he's in charge. He's got it. So, you know, a lot of times you get a call if you're, you know, if you're running through Malacca Straits over by Singapore or you're just a part of China and there's a ton of fishing boat traffic, you, you have a young third mate who's just out of school and they'll call you up and, you know, I leave, we have standing orders and night orders says, you know, if, Keep a one-mile CPA, which is the closest point of approach. So don't let any vessel get within one mile. If you can't maintain that, call me. So you get the call. I'll be like, hey, I can't, I can't maintain it. you got to come up. All right, so you walk up to the bridge. And there's a tendency sometimes for the junior officers to say, okay, well, captain's here. He's going to deal with it. And I'm always real quick to be like, I am not doing this. I'm here in case you need me. But you're doing it. And you can do it. You're perfectly capable of doing it. And you did the right thing by calling me. This is a situation that requires another set of eyes, somebody else watching the radar, somebody else looking out the window, 100%. But it doesn't mean that you're off the hook now, you know, like, and I'll step in if I think they're making the wrong call, but, you know, 90% of the time they do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes we will skirt a fishing boat, you know, a couple hundred feet down the side of the ship. You know, it's way, way closer than you wanted to get. Yeah, but you know, you got you got nothing you can do. These fishing fleets over there are, are massive. Their boats are everywhere, and like you know, we bob and weave and we talk to each other on the radio and you do what you can. And uh, they usually don't answer when you call them. But the uh, so I think in in every aspect, letting people do the hard stuff when you're making the voyage plan, sitting down with the second mate, who's the navigator, and you know, if you want to make a change. So if you come up weather routing, let's say we get, we see, I, I get weather every six hours on the ship. And if I see a system that I want to divert around, it's easy for me to email up to the bridge and say, Hey, second mate, put, change the, uh, change the route. We're going to duck down South, put these new waypoints. But and this is definitely something that I've done after Gonzaga. I'll print out the weather and I'll walk up to the bridge and I'll say, Hey, let's take a look at this together. Let's That's a see. great example, man. Great example. What do you example. think about this? You know? Yeah. And uh, I think it goes a long way. I think it goes to uh, making it an enjoyable workplace. People want to feel that they are valued and their input matters. And, you know, I, it does. And for me, it's always great. You know, I'm dealing with, with meteorologists and weather routers on the shore side, but I always like to hear another mariner say, like, yeah, that, that seems like a good plan. Or be like, oh, no, like, I don't think we should do this because of this. And then you know, give you a little pushback and it keeps you sharp and it's, uh, I think it's all around good. So yeah, I always try to, and empowering other people is something that 
I think I always tried to do it previously, but it's something I'm much more conscious about now yeah. after I finished the, the you're seeking, you're probably seeking more opportunities as well to, to do that. Looking Absolutely. for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely a firm believer that the only way to grow leaders is you have to drive as many decisions downward as you can. I mean, Absolutely. how else are you going to grow a leader? I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. you're training people to take your place one day, you know? Yep. Absolutely. You know, I'm a big fan of letting, you know, the chief mate's usually on the bridge, letting him do the, normally the captain will come up at a certain point and take over as we're getting closer to, to the Harbor, closer to boarding the, uh, the Harbor pilot. But, uh, you know, I'll let the chief mate take it all the way in or the second mate or third mate. If I think they're competent, I see a lot of uh, potential in them and let them get the experience. It's, uh, that it's the most fun part of the job. It's like extremely rewarding. And, uh, exactly what you're saying it really it really is the thing that nurtures the next wave of leaders i think it's i think one of the hardest things from my standpoint and when it back from my coast guard days from you know technical boat driving whether it's in the surf or whatever extreme weather conditions how far do you go to let someone fail especially when there's a a safety component into it when you know potentially Mm -hmm. jeopardizing safety that's a very, can be a very gray area where it's gut instinct sometimes, you know, and I'm sure yeah. you've seen that obviously in your, in your world. I think it's at some point it boils down to a hundred, you know, I think you guys are probably in more of a tricky situation on the ship. Things are happening slower. Right. The, uh, so if you're, if you're using the right bridge resource management tools, you should be able to foresee any dangers down the pipeline pretty far out now you know if, if we were in really heavy traffic i'm not going to give it to the second mate or third mate to bring it into the pilot station right i would keep it myself but you know coming into san francisco uh i would let the chief mate take it in all the time it's you know when traffic's light and it's uh it's not that it's not complicated but it's just that there's a uh, ample opportunity to, to foresee anything that's going to happen and if you needed to take the con back which would mean like you take over control of the ship, you would have ample time to do it and correct any mistakes they made right. being deep enough water without any real hazards around. When you're in, in close quarter situations, whether you're coming into a port or just around heavy traffic, what is the bridge side? How many people are, how many people are making up the bridge? Like how many, what's the most m- amount of people you'd have on the bridge? I mean, almost. So in, at sea, if you're in a mid-ocean, mid-ocean in the middle of a trans-Pacific, typically two people on the bridge, a watch officer and an AB helmsman. We call them a helmsman, but they're not steering. They're primarily there for lookout. The ship's on autopilot. Uh, when you get a little bit closer into port, you would have the captain basically as an observer and the officer of the watch and then an AB. So that would be what we call the watch. So we have watch conditions. Watch condition one is a officer and an AB, an able-bodied seaman. Watch condition two would be the captain, an officer, and an AB. Watch condition three, which we skip a lot, depending on, would be the captain, two watch officers, and the AB. And watch condition four would be the captain and a pilot. And a pilot is a mariner who stays in one port, they come out on a small boat and they will climb a, uh, a ladder up and they guide the, they're, they're experts in that, in that port. They can draw the charts from memory. Uh, and every port around the world has a pilot. So watch condition four, be the captain, a pilot, an officer, and the AB, the helmsman. Are you always in watch condition four when you enter a port, whether foreign or domestic? Yeah. Always. Much. I mean, you know, a lot of times you'd be surprised in foreign ports, you could be pretty far inland before the pilot gets on board in American ports. Predominantly the pilots come on, you know, 10 miles offshore, deep water. But in, uh, in a lot of farm ports the you know, you'll come through a breakwater before the pilots on board. So that, that would be a time when we're using watch condition three. And a, a, uh, a lot of times we go right from watch condition two to watch condition four. Right. How much, when you take a pilot on board to bring you in, let's say, so I, uh, I've told you I live here on the Columbia River. Mm-hmm. Yep. When that Columbia River pilot goes out, 
how much responsibility is transferred to that pilot from you as the ship captain? It's a bit of a gray area. Uh, that's why I was wondering. I almost wondered, was there yeah. tension that comes up on that? No, you know, for the most part, I would not say there's tension, but the uh, there's always a question about how much liability the pilots have. Uh, the So the pilot comes on and basically takes over and starts conning the ship. He starts giving orders directly to the helmsman. The, uh, you know, it's kind of one of the beautiful things about the maritime industry is that the systems that we have in place allow people who have never worked together before to move these like gigantic, you know, some of the world's biggest pieces of equipment into these pretty, uh, pretty tight spaces, you know? And uh, so for the most part, no, but you know, I've had to, in Greece once I had to relieve a pilot and like I, one of my earlier, my second ship as captain and uh, I had seen it done once before in the Suez Canal when I was a junior mate and the captain had to relieve a uh, an Egyptian pilot who just lost control of the ship in the canal. And then, uh, you, so you always think about it like, oh, but then what would happen if I have to relieve the pilot? And it was, it was a weird situation where the same thing that we were trying to come off a dock. There was a lot of wind and the pilot lost control of the stern and the stern was swinging in. We we're going to hit the dock. And I just started calling rudder orders and uh, engine orders. And all of a sudden I said, the pilot just stopped talking. So it was never like a formal transfer. And then I it was, was implied. Oh. Yeah. I was like, Oh, shit. I just relieved the pilot. Like I have it now and I have to deal with it. And then we did, and I got the ship turned and then I said, all right, I turned it back over to him. But uh, yeah. So you, you know, as the captain, you're, you're, you can override the pilot. It's not something that's done often. And if you do do it, you better have a, a really good reason. That's like you know, the last but, tool in, in the toolkit. Exactly. Yep. It's compulsory. You know, like you, you don't have the option for the most part. There are some exceptions, but 99.9% of ships coming to the port are required to take a pilot. So if you don't like what the pilot's doing, you might relieve them, but they'll, you know, they'll call vessel traffic service and they'll put you an anchor until they get you another pilot. So it's not something that's done uh, flippantly. Yeah, and you talked about the beauty of the maritime industry is kind of you can just get together and never met this person and can still operate kind of seamlessly together. A lot of that probably has to do with speaking common terminology, maritime terminology, right? Back mm-hmm. to communication. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. So I'm mindful of your time. I'm super gracious that, that you, you agreed to come on here and talk to me. It was good seeing you. A couple, I just, I got a couple just kind of final questions. The first one is maybe one of your, your biggest challenges, leadership challenges in your career. Like I'm sure relieving, yeah, maybe relieving the pilot was probably a pretty big one. You talked about the air conditioner, you know, yeah. Is there anything else that sticks out? I think anytime that I've had a call, make the call that the ship couldn't leave the dock for one reason or the other was, it's always something that leaves you uh, – I'm trying to think. You, you do it, and you know you have to do it. And you know it's you know, you're doing the right thing, but it's, it, it's not something necessarily that you're happy to do. So it's always a challenge to say – luckily, anytime I've had to do it, I've gotten good support. But, you know, if you have to make the call that I can't sail the ship, it's a uh, – it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And, you know, you better have a good reason for it. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the most challenging part of the my job is, is the human factor, like dealing with the people on the ship. And, you know, we have some really we have some really interesting characters in the maritime industry that uh, that uh, make the job really enjoyable. The fishing also, fleet would agree. Yeah. <laughs> we You know, you got. I mean, we really run the gamut out there. My last second mate was a, uh, he'd spent 25 years as a lawyer before he started going to sea. I sat with medical doctors who, you know, people like really are drawn to the sea and they, they want to get out there and see the world and do it. You get poets and artists and you get guys who spent 15 years in prison, 20 years in prison. They come out and get a job wiping up oil in the engine room. Great guys, you know, but it's, uh, you get, you just get a lot of characters, guys that just aren't going to do an office job. And, uh, it, I find it really enjoyable, but it's definitely challenging dealing with, uh, 
the people on the ship. And, and I say that challenging in a good way. You know, I think you want your job to be challenging. And, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it's making it all work. It's uh, it's definitely a job. <laughs> do you have, every time you sail, do you have certain issues, like leadership challenges that persist every time? Like it's the same thing, like I'm dealing with this all over again. You know, there are reoccurring issues, but I wouldn't necessarily say that you see the same leadership challenges, I think. And I think that's the beauty of like what we were talking about with systems. I think when a new challenge arises, the the industry as a whole is pretty well set up to incorporate that new challenge into the system and make it almost a function of management. So we we get new things popping up all the time. The industry is heavily, heavily regulated. You know, these new regulations pop up and it becomes uh, tricky things to navigate sometimes. But, you know, but, you know, you come back, you go home and you come back to see it. It's just part of the routine. Again, we've, we've incorporated into our procedures and into our voyage plans or, you know, whatever it is that the new regulation or the new union rule or the new grievance or whatever it is, we, uh, we just, we roll it up into the SMS and it's our safety management system. And, uh, we move on and, you know, we're, it's, it's, it's good because you have, ships all over the fleet with that are experiencing these things. And we have one overriding system that's, you know, uh, one overriding management system. So a lot of the issues, you might not even see them before it gets rolled into the, into the, into the safety management system. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's unique. Every time we go out, there's, there's always new challenges. I always say if it wasn't unique, you'd, quickly uh devolve into complacency i think the yeah. uniqueness keeps you from getting <laughs> complacent right mm-hmm. what is what's next on your your agenda man what's uh you have any long-term goals i know you've talked about i've talked to you about potentially writing a book what, yeah, what, you know, what's some my... yeah what's some goals for you what do you got you know i don't know you know i was just so i was just on the ship with covid my you know my normal rotation on the ship is 70 days and uh, that turned into 197 days this last time. So I've been home a little under a month now. So, uh, I mean, you know, just to give you an idea how long I wrote that website that you're looking at. I was on the ship when I put it together. So, like, uh, that's crazy. And, yeah, it's pretty wild. So, and this is the first time I've looked at it in a couple months now. Yeah, you know, I started working on the book a bit, but we were in the dry dock and things just got kind of crazy. So I have a big chunk of vacation right now. Uh you know, right now, I think more than anything, I'm kind of just, it was gone for a long time. It was a good experience all in all, but, uh, you know, I'm just really kind of enjoying time with the family, spending time at home. I don't have any, uh, you know, my, my son was born about two weeks after I started the grad school program. I think I was having a bit of a midlife crisis there. I think, oh, I better get this done now. But, uh, uh, so I think it's just kind of nice to be home for a little bit. What, what, what better time to start a grad school program than right after kids born? <laughs> Impeccable timing. But, uh, yeah, you know, I know I don't have any, uh, I'm pretty happy where I'm at with everything. And, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think about doing another degree or something like that, but I think if I were to do anything, that would be a couple of years down the road. And, uh, mm-hmm. for now I'm just kind of enjoying, uh, enjoying, uh, being home. And I've been thinking about picking up, I did write a outline and a, uh, uh, intro paragraph to a, a book on shipboard leadership. And I think, uh, I think after the new year, I'd probably start like to look into that again, but, uh, I'm sure you yeah. have a lot of stories to share. Yeah. I don't have like a, uh, I'm enjoying some downtime right now. I don't have a pressing desire to, to dive into anything these days. <laughs> I think after being gone, as long as you were, I think it's a noble goal just to kind of enjoy some downtime with the family. Yeah. You know, I think that's, it's important, right. Just to kind of enjoy the simple things in life. And that's where I'm at right now. So, well, again, I am I am I'm gracious that you you came on. I have always enjoyed talking to you about anything, but definitely leadership. I enjoyed going through the program with you. I think even when we weren't in classes, we would reach out every once in a while and text mm-hmm. or whatever. And I and I appreciate. I'm sure people will find a lot of value in in some of the stories you told today and some of the some of the really good leadership nuggets you had in here. So, 
I, I thank you and you know thank your your wife for letting you come on and let me borrow borrow you for for an hour and a half. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, Tim. It's great. It's great talking to you. I appreciate you bringing me on and uh, my first podcast and you know makes me feel important. Somebody wanted to interview me about something. You know, you acted like it was your hundredth <laughs> podcast. I'll be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> hey Ryan, uh, let's stay in touch and and I again I appreciate it and happy holidays to everybody. Absolutely, happy holidays. Thank you. All right, Ryan. Bye. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.